The World According to Gorf. Shalom. 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 And I uh, didn't have any IDs on him, nothing. Your grandfather? My grandpa, yeah, from my dad's side. And uh, I got to the orphanage, they had no IDs to prove who he is, who he belongs to, what's his background, so they gave him a name. <laughs> really? <laughs> and they chose Simit, why? Simit. Uh, he had uh, some mark. Well, so what? Simit means like uh, chick- like a raisin something? <laughs> or something. Simit. You think of like simis? Yes. No, I it's definitely think it's simis, which simis includes simuki. Yes, it's very, very famous. Uh, delicious. Yes, carrots and yeah, yeah. And stew. <laughs> I am seated with Ayal Zimet, ne Simet, ne Simuk. <laughs> who is one of my friends, one of my summer friends. We cross over when we are teaching in summer camps, in Jewish summer camps. Tell us, first of all, what you do professionally. Currently, I coach at Division One women's volleyball, both indoor and actually started the inaugural season on the beach volleyball, collegiate beach volleyball. So um, we are one of the pioneers to start the beach volleyball program at the Division One collegiate level and I'm heading the program and that's where which university at the University of San Francisco and before that you were in the Los Angeles area and what was your profession then right Uh, before that up until 2012 um, I was playing professional beach volleyball and uh, I was trying to compete my way into qualifying to the Olympic Games originally for Israel as an Israeli citizen born and raised no regrets. There's a, it's a very rewarding, and uh, I, I love coaching in San Francisco. The head coach currently in the indoor team is a very good friend of mine from Israel, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we're working very well together. So. What's his name? His name is Gilad Doron. And uh, we work very well together. He actually used to coach me back when I was younger in Israel, um, growing up. And he recruited you? And uh, he recruited me to coach with him at and the university. And did you discuss with him at the time your questions of whether you wanted to give up your professional player status? And what was his advice? We discussed it for many years before <laughs> this year. This was on the line, and uh, he wanted me to come before that. And I've been following the team at the University of San Francisco ever since he got there in 2006. So... I've been following the team. They've been doing much better ever since he got there. And Describe for me what a career as a professional volleyball player means. How much do you travel? How do you earn a living? Is it something that your nice Jewish mother would approve of? <laughs> That's a great question. It involves a lot of self-sacrifice. Consider yourself a professional beach volleyball player in the United States. The professional tour in the United States allowed for the top 10 to make a living domestically, just from prize money. That was the case for many years. With the economical downturn, so did the, the funding for the, for the tours dwindle. And your association that, actually went bankrupt. Yes. In 2010, the AVP went bankrupt, and that definitely affected decisions of my decision and um, many others that were in my shoes to start thinking about possible other avenues. Not that you wear uh, shoes when you play beach volleyball. That, <laughs> that is, yeah, figuratively speaking. Yes. 
yes, I did not hang any shoes while retiring. It was mostly board shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Neon colored. Right yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to get into your training, both physical and mental. But before I do, I'm curious about the support that your family gave. What did they think about this idea of a man from Israel, a small country, engaging in volleyball as his career? Was this the kind of thing that they approved of? Was this the kind of thing that your Jewish mother supported? <laughs> My Jewish mother supported uh, every step of the way. I guess I was very lucky. Both my parents were, were very supportive of it. The area where I grew up, Kibbutz Enamifatz, is right by Akko, uh, or just uh, 20 kilometers north of Haifa. And the, the culture was uh, all about, the at least the athletic culture, was all about volleyball. So you were close to the Mediterranean? Very close to the Mediterranean. You're right on the beach. We're five minutes away from the Mediterranean, uh, we are 10 minutes away from the old port of Akko. I was just there with my family. Pesach time. Pesach time? Yes. That is gorgeous, huh? It was stunning. My family particularly loved it. But the sad part was I couldn't have any hummus. <laughs> the low kidney out. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Because Akko, as you may know, is the home of the best hummus in the world. And uh, right when you enter the market... At the port, uh, there's a little place, very humble place called Said. And if you are a homeless fan, you are definitely should put that on your bucket list. <laughs> uh, there's no question that I will. You and I are big fans of hummus and shawarma in particular. Uh huh. That's true. And uh, shawarma, especially shawarma in Israel. It's tough to get uh, as good a shawarma outside of Israel. It's just surprising. We were talking about that earlier, and I agree <laughs> with you. The shawarma that I find here in the States is always very greasy. <laughs> uh, the meat is not lamb. It's more li likely to be chicken. That's and true. you pointed out something very interesting to me about the different cultures mm -hmm. of shawarma and the reason why. Go ahead. Right. There's more, as far as I, I could tell, there's more Lebanese, Turkish shawarmas here in the United States and they are and in Israel somehow this is what we're used to it's just better <laughs> I, I'm definitely I, with you on that uh, for those listeners no offense <laughs> if you run a shawarma place <laughs> <laughs> right but you have something to aspire to now and if you think that you, that you do have the best shawarma <laughs> outside of Israel please go on our Facebook page The World According to Gorf on Facebook.com <laughs> Let us know where you're at, and we will check you out. And you'll know who we are, because it'll be a neon-wearing, <laughs> sunglass-toting, bronze volleyball Israeli god, and his schlubby Ashkenazi sidekick. <laughs> Can't miss us. Right, and by the way, I'm the bronze god. <laughs> <laughs> and prepare two, please, two full shawarma meals for me. I'm right there. So take us back to... Little Ayal or Ayal Katan, and how did you decide that volleyball was not just something that was culturally interesting to you on your kibbutz, but would become your profession and your way of life to the point of making all kinds of sacrifices, personal and otherwise? Right. The local team was very successful before I was born, 
my dad was a part of the team as well. Both my cousins were part of it. I remember every Friday evening, we would all, the whole family, get together at our grandparents' house, fill up a balloon, and go to our grandparents' um, bedroom, and put two chairs in the middle of the room, which would be the net, and just play two-and-two two or three-on-three three balloon volleyball for hours on end. And I remember it was just so much fun. I grew up into it because the culture and the, the local team was successful. All the youth teams and the coaching at that time was very good at national level. We got very good instructions at a very young age for volleyball and we were almost anybody in the region that was um, a decent athlete was almost channeled into volleyball and um, that's that's how I start you know stuck to volleyball from then on just went through the you know th- through the national teams the different ages in Israel and the local team they made it to the senior team at a very young age and it was very exciting and my parents obviously were fully supported and very excited with me and once I moved to the United States to pursue volleyball and a degree in Hawaii, they were again you know, fully supportive and came to visit twice and were very happy for for the success that you know and for the journey that volleyball is taking me. What kind of competition did you have in Israel? Was it on a national level, an international level? You have to understand that my knowledge of Israeli volleyball is limited to a an Adam Sandler movie, the, the, the Zohan movie. You don't mess with the Zohan. Are you kidding me? Um, well, there's a lot more to it than that, even though the volleyball in Don't Mess With The Zohan is incredible. Not, but... Not. <laughs> he, he was looking at my expression like, are you from Mars? <laughs> But uh, I invite you, if this is your knowledge of volleyball in Israel, I'll definitely invite you to my home team home match. And they actually just won the double this year. They kind of, it's a renaissance of the team. It was great. Uh, my classmate is actually the head coach currently of, the, of our home team, and they won the championship in Israel and the cup. And the packed gym, like as loud as can be, and it was great. So definitely, if you're next time in Israel, you're welcome to visit my parents in the kibbutz and go to a home game if it works out the same days. I think you'd like it. I'm sorry, I didn't know that when I was just there. That would have been a blast. That would have been if okay, you were so close. To to. You missed Saeed and you missed a, a home game in Naaman. This is the home home court. So the competition level there is the equivalent of a country much larger than the size of Israel? I'd say yes, for sure. Much larger than the size. Meaning there's a greater amount of talent per capita. I would say the national team is doing much better than the um, yeah the size of the population. We still need to compete and qualify to the Olympic Games through Europe, which is our continent that we're associated with, and that's probably one of the hardest continents to qualify from. And it makes it very difficult. But in terms of the European uh, Cup and championships... For myself, we've competed, we've almost made it to, uh, actually we're two points away from getting to the final four of the European Cup. The decisive match was in Slovenia, 
and we were playing against the local team. We took that game to the wire, and um, by the end of it, it was two points. On don't want to complain. <laughs> <laughs> we made it pretty far with the team, our local team from the kibbutz. You know, with the two foreigners, one from Ukraine and one from Russia, and it was a great competition. Uh, traveled from to play Tseska, Moscow. Um, in Moscow, traveled all over Europe to play, to compete, traveled with the national team all over Europe and Asia, um, and it was great. I mean, the experiences and the competition that you you go through are differently if you're talking about mental strengthening and obviously professional strengthening, uh, improving. That's There's no equivalent to that. So you went through Tijon, you went through high school on the kibbutz? Yeah. And then after that, you did your service in Sahal? Yes. Do they have a Sahal volleyball team? They do, but at the time, there was a quota of six athletes for the, in the entire nation, in the entire country, uh, that are sort of assigned this uh, special status when you're enlisted in the military. I was one of these uh, six athletes. The, it allowed me to go, still go through basic training three months and professional training three months. What years were these? 96 to 99. Relatively quiet time. Relatively quiet time, except for, yeah, right after Rabin's... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, before the second intifada. Right, before. Yeah, that was the time in the military. How is it perceived by other soldiers? if you get this privilege, this honor? A great question again. Uh, I'd recommend uh, all of you, if that was cut before, to, <laughs> if you get a chance, to hop on for an interview at yes. World According to Gorf. And um, definitely one of the best interviewers I've had the chance to be with. Great question. Contention, it's a point yes. of contention, for sure, within the kibbutz, within the military, uh, some you know some people choose to look at it like uh, it's uh, not really serving, but majority of the population is uh, very appreciative because uh, you are representing the country uh, in a different way possibly, but you are representing the country and throughout the six months that um, regardless you need to do. You know, we went through, I was guarding, you know, right outside um, a community, right outside of Jerusalem as well, uh, for a while, and, yeah, getting hairy sometimes, but that's, you know, that's the service. It's not a, um, I think it was a very maturing experience, to say the least. Following yeah. 1999, where did you go? Throughout the military service, uh, the assistant coach from uh, an American university came to watch uh, the World Junior Championships that was held at that time in Israel. So um, he got to see me play a little bit, and uh, another person from the kibbutz went to play in that university before and uh, did very well. Which university? In the University of Hawaii. I see. Okay, so I see where this is going. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nahum Siegel Network. In August of 99, I was um, enrolled in the University of Hawaii and started my collegiate career there. And it was phenomenal, phenomenal experience just because of the fact that there's no professional sports in Hawaii. And the university sports garners 
the entire community's support. And right. you're not in Israel, although I imagine the climate is somewhat similar, so at least that helps. <laughs> and Hawaii is a little bit like a kibbutz. Yeah, that's true also. That's true because, yeah. after all, they do have Saeed's hummus on every corner there. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, what was it like for you to adjust to the American culture and Hawaiian culture specifically? And also, can you tell any funny stories about being an Israeli in Hawaii? Yes, a few. Adjusting. I grew up speaking English because uh, of my mom. And um, so in that regard, I was relatively comfortable uh, in, with the language. And I was very focused on trying to get a national championship in Hawaii. So that was my mission, goal, and drive ever since I landed in Hawaii. In terms of uh, adjusting to the culture, Hawaiian culture is very, very mellow. For me, in terms of my personality and coming from the kibbutz, it was actually compatible. I think I'm pretty mellow myself. and uh, <laughs> Unless you're playing ultimate frisbee. Unless I'm playing ultimate because frisbee. Because today I got a face full of ayal <laughs> when I was playing Look, ultimate frisbee. Yes, once he gets to competition, no, I would not consider myself mellow. When I'm trying to throw a frisbee and suddenly the uh, tall, strapping, Israeli bronze volleyball god is right in my face blocking me, <laughs> it's a vision that I will be carrying in my nightmares <laughs> for the next several days. I'm glad I could help you sleep at night. Yeah, yeah, but we still won. <laughs> we won. Yeah. We only played till three, but we won. It's true. That's it's fine. True. Good uh, draft picks. What, yeah, I, I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. So the culture, the cultural shock. So there are two elements here. Number one yeah. is, what was it like, obviously, to be a foreigner, to be an Israeli in Hawaii? And you talked a little bit how the mellow ambiance <clears throat> matched up. But there's also, you were representing, you felt like you were representing Israel right. as a volleyball player and uh, carrying the Israeli flag out into the rest of the world, yeah. did you feel being in Hawaii that you had that same kind of responsibility, that same kind of identity? For sure. Uh, every time I left the borders of Israel, I felt like I'm an ambassador of, well the, of the sport, ambassador of the country and, our, and the culture, and still feel that way everywhere I go. I'm continuing a, a legacy because uh, there were Israelis there before me that, which have done very well. The crowd was already somewhat conditioned to crazy Israelis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people in the crowd were coming to games with Israeli flag, and you know that was, you know, the first time I saw that it was very emotional for me just to come to a gym, a volleyball gym, probably the furthest possible destination on earth from Israel and to see the Israeli flag up in the crowd in the stands it was it was great well you're a top 10 player so you <laughs> must have done something right what was your schedule like we were doing our conditioning sessions at 6:30 in the morning uh, so that means you know waking up at 5:30 in the morning and then heading over to do sprints and intervals and uh, weights and then uh, in the afternoon you go to class after that and then in the afternoon we have volleyball um, practice in the gym and that will be the preseason we'd have um, practice matches during the preseason about 3 or 4 and that will be during the fall, and then once um, we come back from the uh, winter break, we start our season right away. Uh, enter into preseason, uh, double days, again same schedule, and 
and then roll into season with uh, about 24 matches or so before playoffs and that would be that would be our season and the hard part for Hawaii would be the road trip it's obviously the closest place to go to is the uh, west coast and we would go uh, on road trips to play two three matches at a time and um, you know they just fighting with the jet lag um, the night before starting to play it's it was difficult but good times on Hawaiian Airlines <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we we learned how to predict the halfway mark that they always ask you on the flight to Hawaii. You get a prize if you're you're guessing the closest to the once the plane crosses the halfway mark to Hawaii. So we got very good at that. You know, one more thing about the compatibility with Hawaii that I felt was that it was very active lifestyle, very a lot of outdoor activities. From Israel, growing up, we would always, uh, I would love to go, you know, very a lot of outdoor activities that we did as a family. And uh, growing up with this high school class, and it was very compatible in that regard in terms of just hiking and swimming and biking and playing volleyball on the beach and, uh, and surfing. But, um, yeah, that's, it was kayaking and all sorts of available right within 25 minutes drive max were you on a scholarship there yes i was on a full scholarship there um and how did you support yourself otherwise for other needs um i was able to since i was an american citizen i was able to get a Pell grant which was very helpful did you remain in hawaii after you were a student Yes, I remained in Hawaii after I was a student um, for about six more years on and off working and then uh, practicing in beach volleyball because as soon as I was done with the indoor, uh, the Olympic Committee from Israel contacted me with the requests. They asked me if I would be interested in uh, being a part of the Israeli national team beach volleyball mm. and try to make it at that time to Beijing. Wow. And um, so... I again thought about it for about half a second and of course said yes. I was at the time on the indoor national team, but um, I was very happy to shift into the beach volleyball scene because I definitely saw that as more feasible opportunity than uh, qualifying to the Olympic Games through the indoor team, where you need to have 12 good athletes, good players in order to qualify versus two good players in order to qualify, which, you know, that makes it, that whole deal a lot more doable. Beside the fact that the beach volleyball game definitely suited my skill set, which was overall ball control. How do you cover that much space? <laughs> That's a... You have two people on a court that's meant for six people. <laughs> uh, so that's magic. Well then, let's move on to another topic. <laughs> yeah, next. <laughs> right, because I saw before you had three balls that you were practicing your juggling uh -huh. and I was wondering what that was all about right I picked juggling up during my military career um, because heaven knows you don't have enough <laughs> to juggle already in a military career seriously so, so um, I felt like it would be a very good uh, complementary hand-eye coordination improvement for my game I thought it would help the volleyball game and it did I saw results in the, on the volleyball court in terms of hand-eye coordination and I recommend anybody to challenge themselves in that regard if they're doing any type of sport because I think it can help 
you're playing two on two. Yes. You're playing at the highest possible competitive level. Right. How do you train yourself physically and mentally to play that game? And can you tell us a little bit about the strategy of covering that space in order to be victorious? First of all, the court, the beach volleyball court, ever since the Olympic Games in Sydney, 2000, they shrunk the court. So it's not the same size as the indoor size. Uh, if we go by meters, the indoor court is 9 by 9 meters, which is about 27 and a half or 28 feet. And that's the dimension of the indoor court. And the beach volleyball court now was reduced to 8 by 8 meters, which is about 24 feet. That seems like a relatively small reduction of reduction the size. Figure, yes. Yeah, the size of the court. That's true, but it is meaningful because what the modern beach volleyball game became is, as the court got smaller, the blockers got bigger, and in that, those two factors together, they reduced the offensive options pretty significantly. So that's in combination together, that was a significant change for the beach volleyball game and. It made some players obsolete in terms of their type of game. And How did it affect your game? For me, it was, uh, it was fine. I played very little before when I started in 2004 to concentrate more on beach volleyball. It was already small court. So for me, most of the main part of my beach volleyball practice was on a short court already. If you had to give a tip to amateur beach volleyball players like myself. Yeah. What would you say is the number one thing that I should be working on? Serve and pass. Number one priority would be serve-receive, and number two priority would be serving. Now, I see when professional beach volleyball players play that the serves come in really fast, and they can come in strong and low. Right. So you really have to dive and dig to get some of those and return them right away. Yeah. And the, the play is fast. Mm-hmm. So how do you stay focused? Years of practice. Do you anticipate, do you have almost a, a, a library of moves in your head, kind of like chess, where 80% you've seen before and you kind of feel it's going to go in this way, so I know how to respond. Right. And it's more, at this point, it's muscle memory and uh, in many aspects. And, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, the ability to be able to read you know, somebody's arm be able to read their, you know, their body post posture in order to give yourself some details before the ball is contacted. In terms of preparing yourself, the only way to do it is to put yourself through rigorous conditioning sessions on the sand and putting yourself in game-like situations uh, like you would, you know, be experiencing in a match. If you need to make a fast move to a certain direction during a game and you feel like this is not your strength currently, then imitate that in practice and do it over and over again. Improve on, on yourself. That's the only way to, you know, to get better. That's, uh, but the ability to recognize what you're weak in and then work on it, that's important. So would you describe yourself as a technical player or a flashy player? Uh, uh, interesting technical player probably more than more than a flashy player so you've built up a great set of skills that you depend on so whether you're having a good day or a bad day you can call upon that craft right to excel and that's probably why you're a top 10 player that would be one of the reasons yeah you know that's a what would you say the reasons are what what gives you the edge why did Israel reach out to you 
and say, we want you to be our man on the new beach volleyball team? It's uh, a good question. You know, they I could have gone uh, to Kibbutz Lavi and gotten somebody. <laughs> they could have gone anywhere, yeah. Um, I think at that point, I've had some uh, some experience on the beach as a younger player growing up in Israel that they've, uh, you know, sort of knew about to make the decision. Plus, my type of game was uh, very transferable to the beach from mm-hmm. the indoor. Solid skill level versus... Um, just a power hitter. After the Athens Olympic Games, the Olympic Committee in Israel sat down and decided on six different sports that were targeted to be funded more heavy than before in order to, with the higher chance of a medal in Beijing. And those six sports included beach volleyball. Judo? Judo was already targeted because they already earned medals in Barcelona but that was before and, that. Um, and in Athens too I think they got bronze mm-hmm. impressive always impressive comments questions or you just want to fetch go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf take you back to Hawaii. You were working there for six years in addition to playing volleyball. I understand that you had a very interesting job. It was very interesting, very random, <laughs> kind of a roller coaster in the entertainment business. As I was graduating from college, a friend of ours had, his girlfriend was running a casting agency. They needed volleyball players for one of the commercials and we, once we were done with the college, we were able to do it and we did that commercial and we, they got our information and that information was passed to a casting agency that was at the time working with the Lost uh, on their pilot. As in the ABC TV series a- Lost? Correct, as in that series. Uh, once they got picked up by ABC after the pilot was successful, I got a call from the casting agency uh, saying that if I would be interested in uh, uh, participating as Matthew Fox's stand-in. Matthew Fox playing Jack Sawyer, who was uh, the Jack, lead on the show. Jack Shepard. Shepard. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Sawyer's a different yeah, character. Yeah, Sawyer is the other one. Jack Shepard, yes. the protagonist of the show. Right. The doctor. Right. And uh, the protagonist. Um, That's my own entertainment career kind of yeah. sneaking its way in. Right. Right. Well, you know why they named him Shepard. Uh, because he is um, supposed to he was show the, everybody. He, he was the, the Christ-like figure on the show. He yeah. was the one who sacrificed for everybody and was the leader. Yeah, he was the leader. Yeah, that's yeah. why. And that, I mean, but his father's name was Christian Shepard. Couldn't right. get any more obvious than that. <laughs> In very symbolic. Yes, very symbolic. So you were hired as Matthew Fox's stand-in. So at that point, I didn't finish my degree yet, and I needed. I had about two more weeks, uh, and I had no clue what that call meant in terms of the entertainment business, which later on I learned was an unbelievable opportunity for someone that is interested in getting into the entertainment business. I told them that I need to finish my degree first two weeks, and I did. And once I finished my degree, I had to... I 
went to a graduation party on the East Coast with my family, which arrived from Israel. So that was another two weeks. So a month later, they still were willing to, you know, accept me, which is very unusual, but uh, I'm grateful to it. And I joined the production, and from then on, I was doing some background uh, parts, but mostly doing a stand-in for Matthew Fox, and some stunts, and just being a part of that whole production was, uh, it was phenomenal. It was uh, such an experience to be behind the scenes and see how much work is getting into 10 seconds that we see on the screen after it's incredible. It's yeah, not much suspense when you're on set. <laughs> not much suspense. Rather, a lot of ennui, a lot of sitting around and waiting for everything to be lit and right. the director to call action. Right. And uh, But for me, it was fascinating. It was a fascinating experience. Why? Uh, give, give me some. Give me three examples of things that were fascinating to you. Fascinating to me, first of all... And also, describe what a stand-in is, for those of us that don't know. Okay. Fascinating, it was... Fa- the standing is, let's start with that. It's, uh, it's called the second unit in the production. So you have the main cast. They go through a rehearsal for a scene. From that moment on, when they're done with the rehearsal, second unit comes in which is the stand-in. We go through the entire scene again for the director, the director of photography, the lighting and the, the, the uh, set dressing staff and crew. Everybody's preparing the set and the camera angles and the lens and the lighting with the second team. So in other so, words, they get their technical work out of the way. Right on people who are not the stars of the show. Exactly. So that they don't exhaust their stars, they save them for the actual acting. Precisely. Now, do you needed to know the script, you needed to yeah. know the blocking, and to hit your marks and so forth, right. you need to know lines as well? Yes, you need to know lines, because that was one of the cues for changing from one location to the next. Sometimes you had to actually speak the lines with the other characters, because that would be the cue for them. And for the camera to move, Technically, we had to go through the entire scene. That's part of the fascinating aspect of it, which because you get to, you know, to be a part of the story, and it was great just to see it unfold. Could you make sense out of it? <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> most of the time, no. <laughs> and that was the magic of it. But uh, well, that's a well. English is a strong language for you because, as you said before, you have a background. Your family is, <laughs> yeah. is part American. But nevertheless, memorizing lines is hard enough. Memorizing lines, <laughs> memorizing lines in another language. Yeah. How's your memory? Uh, back then, <laughs> <laughs> back then it was okay. My memory is good. Uh, for numbers, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, for sentences, it was. I was surprised actually that it was. It was good. I was able to go through the scenes pretty, pretty good. Obviously with the Hebrew accent, which was uh, not quite uh, Matthew Fox's accent, but. <laughs> It was uh, it was good. Did and you ever sit down with him and get pointers where he would say, "This is the way that I would do it to uh, make your life a little easier"? No. So when Matthew, uh, there's so in other words, you told him how to do yeah, it with an Israeli I, accent. I told him how he should serve. 
Right. <laughs> no. uh, but uh, I, I bet you uh, were there pickup games. Uh, we played uh, the set, uh, not not all, but uh, yeah, some of the cast played. It was fun. Mm. Um, uh, it was very very close knit unit, especially at the beginning, and uh, it was uh, it was interesting. And as you asked about, you know, there's different type of actors. Once you get into entertainment business, you you realize everybody's uh, ability to connect and disconnect with fr- with and from their character is different. You know, they uh, some people are staying in character for the entire for the entire time that they're on the set, and some people are as soon as the you know the camera is off, they're done back to being themselves and you know talking and they don't have any problem jumping back in and out of character and your actor Matthew Fox was of which variety so in that regard it felt like um, Matthew Fox was very professional on set but uh, he stayed on character really for the majority of the time so you're making sure that there, you know, there's no need to distract in any means. But it was very interesting just being in the proximity with the directors and the director of photography, because you're behind the camera when the actual scene is being shot as well, and it's uh, just very interesting to see the way of thinking and the way of um, trying to get certain angles and trying to get certain views and overviews and setting up the scene and um, getting a little closer to close-ups and uh, getting the and all of the reasoning you know behind it you hear some of the conversations it's very interesting because I've never been exposed to it before particularly interesting that you found it interesting because many people who are very active people and have Right. Little Savlanut can't stand being on the set because watching paint peel is a more exciting activity frequently than watching a set being dressed. That's true. That's true. So I've used the time, you know, that I had on the set a lot to. I did my workout when I had time to stay in shape, some some conditioning, some strength uh, that I could do on set. By the time I was done shooting, the days that they were done uh, that. You know, Matthew Fox was not working. Then I was practicing on the beach, so I got my activity. I felt like at that time it was it worked out well. It was a good way to be flexible enough, and um, obviously, you know, great projects, you know, TV show to be a part of, which I definitely cannot complain about. Really fortunate to have that fall in my lap. And you were on Lost for how many seasons? Uh, about two and a half seasons, the first two and a half seasons. And are there any scenes that you've watched in the DVDs that we can go back and say, oh yeah, that's clearly you? There's some, but I try to stay away from being obviously seen. There's some scenes that are that I'm doing background that it's far away that you may be able to, but beside that, doing some photo double shots for Matthew Fox, you're not supposed to know that it's me, otherwise I haven't done my job well. They give you a wig? Or do you uh, want your uh, I actually shaved, your Jufro? No, I actually shaved shaved my head for the show for the first time. Oh, that's um, right, because he had a very close cut uh, haircut in that show. Yeah, yeah. So about that. and um, when he had a beard, did you have to put all the, the so, beard yeah, stuff on too? They did. Yeah, they did that. Yeah, with the spirit gum and all that. <laughs> yeah, they did that. All of it. Uh, put some uh, the rugged look. Yeah, and then the stunt that I was doing uh, again, 
if you recognize me, then I haven't okay, done a good job. You're a volleyball player, and they're asking you to be a stuntman? Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what were they asking you to do? Uh, the stunt was with Michelle Rodriguez. And, really? Um, Who was known for her work in the Fast and the Furious. The Fast well. and the Furious, exactly. And um, she was one of the others at that time. If you remember, it's been a while. Right, the uh, others being the antagonists right. on the show. Right, yeah. and uh, she just captured one of uh, the people that she felt were betraying them. She knocked him out, dragged him on her back, and dropped him into a ditch that she dug ahead of time. That's what I did. <laughs> That's what you did, right. And then he was in the pit for a while, as I remember. He was, yeah. yeah. But my role was to basically fall and roll into the ditch, uh-huh. which was uh, very exciting, and it was done in one one take. Wow, you're a one-take and, wonder. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you know how to do that, though? Because you can't just do that and not get hurt. You have to actually have some some kind of technique. Right. I was watching Matthew Fox's stunt double is very, very experienced uh, stunt double that they brought in from L.A. He actually did the stunt for MacGyver as well, if you remember the TV show. You, sure. The, a stick of gum, a couple the, of... Yeah. Uh, Matches and uh, a piece of string, and uh, I can stop a nuclear bomb. Precisely. So growing up, MacGyver was my idol. If only I could idol. put this incredible knowledge to Torah, I'd be a brilliant rabbinical student. But anyway, yes. So for those of you who don't know, um, MacGyver was uh, like uh, Gorf was mentioning, a magician, and uh, he was my idol growing up, mm. and just. Uh, being on the set with the, his stunt double was great. So we got to talk a lot, actually. And uh, we went over what the scene is going to require and what I should do. And the stunt coordinator had two assistants that were very helpful. And, uh, you know, there were, you know, safety measures that were taking in order to make sure that there's no injuries. And it was very well done in terms of the assisting. What's the craziest story that you can tell from your time on the set? <sighs> craziest story uh, I can tell you but I'd probably have to kill you and by the way you're capable of it so I take, easy, <laughs> I take your, your word <laughs> terms you get of, to go uh, down the hatch uh, of course Yeah, that's uh, just being a part of uh, <laughs> just going to all these locations that looked so mysterious on TV yeah, well, and, uh, I mean, what, what was the hatch in reality? Just a, a little manhole that they put in the dirt somewhere and then they <laughs> cut to a Hollywood set? Again, um, I don't know if uh, there's a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> I, I understand. I won't, I won't press you. I'll, yeah. I'll go for the DVD uh, specials, yes. the Blu-ray specials, <laughs> and I'll watch your interview over there where you spill the beans. <laughs> Sounds good. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org. Ayel Zimmet, why did you decide to leave? What were you moving on to? I've decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue the professional beach volleyball career. And uh, at that time, uh, I went with a, a partner from Kauai that we played on in Hawaii together. Did you choose partners in, in volleyball like that? Do you choose them yourself, or is that done by a sponsor yeah. or a coach? Yeah, that's done yourself because uh, you're the person that needs to have the chemistry on the court with that person. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for you to be able to, you know, to maximize you guys together as a team, your potential. There has to be good communication. There has to be somebody that you're 
that you trust, that you respect, and that's, uh, you know, like, you know, you can compare it to any other relationship, you know, in order to be successful. It's the same thing. You're just two people on the court and you're trying to get to the same goal. The only way to do it is to have the compatible person for you, the person that, uh, in terms of skills and in terms of personality, it sort of completes you. That was a good choice. We both were able to practice a little bit more in Hawaii, so we went to try to qualify in the... The tournament in Santa Barbara in 2006. We were unseated. You know, we were no points, neither of us, because we never played. And uh, we went and played in the qualifier. We were the last team in the qualifier. We were seated 86. We went on to compete through four rounds of matches that day, which was grueling, very exhausting, and um, was it hot that made day? qualify. Yeah qualified to the main draw and made AVP history at the same time by being the lowest seeded team in the qualifier to make it to the main draw. Wow. And it still holds. Still, The record's still there. Amazing. <laughs> um, and we ended up uh, in the main draw playing against that number one team at the, at the time, Stein Metzger and uh, Lambert. They're both from Hawaii as well. It was exciting for us, and it was a great battle, and uh, we ended up uh, losing then, but it was a huge fueling experience for both of us to try and compete again. And we competed again the next weekend in Huntington, again, qualifier, because we didn't have enough points, and again, we qualified to the main draw, which was almost unheard of for a new team to qualify back-to-back tournaments in their first two tournaments playing. After that, I had some talks with my parents. I had some talks with the uh, Olympic Committee, and um, with. And that's the, of course when you told your mother, with "Mama, me. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm <laughs> not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a volleyball player." Right. And she said, "Is that something that a nice Jewish boy should be doing?" <laughs> she said, "How many cookies do you want?" I said, "A hundred." And, and she, she went on, of course, as you said before, <laughs> to know from Israel the names of all of your competitors and all of your teammates and exactly. all of your stats. Right. She made it a mission for herself to basically be the beach volleyball almanac. Or the imanac. Imanac. <laughs> yes, precisely. Yeah. Uh, but that was the reason why, um, so consulting with the Olympic Committee and my parents, the, my girlfriend at the time in Hawaii, which was a big decision, and uh, decided to to move and say goodbye to the production at Lost. Was that an easy decision because you knew you were moving on to the place you wanted to be in your yes. true profession? Yeah, it wasn't an easy decision at all. But um, again, I was excited because it was, yeah, it was, it felt like it was the right, right path. And that takes us up to the ABP. ABP, the Association of Volleyball Professionals. That was the, the premier professional tour for beach volleyball in the United States. Great feeder into all of the United States' Olympic teams. For me at that time, it was a great situation and opportunity to hone my skills and get better at beach volleyball while waiting for an Israeli partner to join me and represent Israel. You told me once about some crazy event that you had, the hottest in terms of the the sun, the hottest event (laughs) that you've ever attended. Can you tell us about that? That event was actually representing the United States in 2010 with a partner from San Diego 
USA Volleyball sent us to play in an FIVB tournament in Chennai, India, which used to be Madras, India, for those of you who may be before they changed the name, it used to be Madras, now it's Chennai, and it's in the southeast part of India. Very, very long trip to fly out there, to say the least. This is the first time for me in India, and it was uh, we had to get a business visa, so that was a whole ordeal on its own because um, they won't take just a tourist visa because it was a prize money tournament. Again, there was a last-minute thing, and you know the embassy was just taking their time, and business visa takes time regardless, and visa to India takes even more time. We last minute before we got on the flight, we finally got our visas. We went there, and um, the tournament was held on a beach. The bleachers were made from ropes and sticks, and they had lighting, which was, you know, to play at dark. And it was, it was actually a, a lovely location. We got there we uh, about four days before the tournament because we wanted to kind of get rid of the jet lag, get used to the food, and get some practices going before. And um, that's what we did. And we had a team from Canada and a team from uh, Germany that we practiced with over there. And it was a great, great preparation for the tournament. But we practiced at dark with the lights on after the hottest time of the day. The game started at 8 o'clock and went through 10, 11, 12. Uh, our first match was at, scheduled to be at noon. <laughs> Um, and we get there to the venue, and like that was scorching hot. It was about 98 degrees. The humidity level <laughs> was about 95, and I kid you not, people were dropping. We had an Italian team that played at 11, had to forfeit a match because the one of the players had a heat stroke. They had to take him to the hospital. Another Another team from Iran was actually in the same same boat after their game. The one of the players complained on major major headaches and uh, and whatnot. And then we were scheduled to play to warm up. You had to run around the stadium. Now the court, the center court was. They would spray it with water to cool off the sand a little bit in the center court. So you can actually play on it barefoot, but anywhere around, you could not walk barefoot. It was just the sand was scorching hot. You just burn your feet. So we actually did our warm up, which is unusual. We did our warm up outside there, the stadium, with shoes on the sand, because it was just too hot. By the end of the day, I looked at my soles, the bottom of my shoes. <laughs> The attraction was not there anymore. It was just unbelievable. Melted so, away. Melted away. It was that hot. So we were scheduled to play Ukrainian team at noon. The Ukrainian <laughs> team. Very well equipped very, for the desert. Very well equipped. So we start the warm-up, and both teams are like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. And the players, we see the Italian team outside there getting treatment. Right, people that <laughs> we, on stretchers. We, Have a good game, guys. We're, you know, going through our, we, you know, it was ridiculous. And the head ref comes to us, to the captains, at the coin flip. And 
is honestly asking us, uh, you, we got a word from the, you know, tournament organiz- organizers and they, you know, they're considering postponing the rest of the, of the afternoon games to after four o'clock when it's cooling down a little bit. And, uh, this is up to you, you guys, uh, if you're, you know, if you're interested, uh, we can postpone it and come back here at four and play your game. And at that point, we were all like drenched already, like already warmed up, or probably overheated. And um, I'm looking at the Ukrainian team, and I'm looking at my my partner, and uh, I know what I'm feeling, and I know it's going to be hard, but I just figured it's probably going to be harder for the Ukrainian team. And that's what we went with, and we said, uh, let's play anyways. And we did, and uh, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, we won the game, but I felt like at the end of the game, I probably lost like five years out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was that hot. But and the Ukrainian team agreed to this, they had to, otherwise. They, they did. So what were they thinking? I don't know, but They were thinking, at that well, point, we know how we're feeling, <laughs> the Hawaiian guys, the Hawaiians <laughs> and the Israelis. They must right. be worse off than we are. Are they crazy? Right. Uh, they were maybe thinking about just uh, finishing the game and going drinking. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, for the Ukrainian of you listeners, no offense. So the remaining of the tournament, the entire schedule was shifted for the evening game. So from then on out, we played the matches starting from 4. And uh, one of our games, we finished at 2 in the morning. So under the lights over there. That was... That was interesting. And the crowd, it was tremendous support also from the community. People, those rinky-dinky bleachers, they were packed. Mm -hmm. Like 3,000 people were watching in the main stadium, and then all the little stadiums outside were surrounded by people. The community loved volleyball there. It was great to see. Uh, We tried in between games to go to the bleachers and watch some of the uh, women's U.S. team compete so we go up to the bleachers and my partner from san diego was about uh, you know six six kid pretty big from uh, michigan uh used to play football so he's a he's pretty big okay, guy that's what the ukrainians were thinking right. this guy is maybe. a michigan football player he plays in the snow maybe the odds are a little more even now right yeah they lost so too bad, but we were so we're walking up to the on the bleachers over there and starting crack. <laughs> you hear these noises. Uh, it's just uh, we're looking under and it's all. Then we realize it's all like just you know wood and ropes and sticks. And this guy is probably weighs three times of the average in, <laughs> Indian person in the crowd. So it's not meant for people like him. And he's just had Saeed's shawarma. Oh, you know it. So I wish. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the case, yeah. That was the experience in Chennai, India. That's incredible. Well, we've got to wrap up. What are your objectives? Well, what's in the future? What's in the near future? And what do you want to achieve? Currently, as of as, uh, turning to coaching in the University of San Francisco, the objectives are to make the NCAA tournament with the indoor team. Any of you the listeners that are stopping by this city at the in San Francisco, you're more than welcome to find me, Eyal Zimet. You can find it on the website for the University of San Francisco. You're welcome to join us for the games. You be my guest. Eyal Zimet, Eyal Zimet. Tadarabalacha.
תודה לך. הצלחה רבה. תודה, נעים מאוד. חומוס. חומוס. שווארמה. אמן. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Torah me Star Trek. Welcome to Torah me Star Trek. This is your Admiral, Dr. Jeffrey Lautman, along with Chief Hamantaschen Maker, Dr. Jordan Gorfinkel. And as you all know, the holiday of Purim is coming up. And so therefore, I thought we would talk about the Purim Suda and the Purim Celebration. As you all know, there are a lot of cultures that interact on Star Trek, and I thought we'd go through with some of them. Well, what Purim Suda would be complete without some Romulan ale? Color, a very light blue. By the way, its proper Romulan name is Kali Fal. It is illegal within the United Federation of Planets, much like Cuban cigars are or were in the United States. But like the captains of industry of today, captains of starships indulge in this vice. As Kirk said in The Undiscovered Country, the routine violation of the embargo is one of the advantages of being a thousand light years from Federation headquarters. As you well remember in the episode where they were traveling across space along with the individuals that lived in a very fast speed of time, it was Scotty who inebriated one of the aliens with Romulan ale, so he was Mekayim the Mitzvah of Adlo Yoda. Were you to get a Mishloach Malot from your fellow Romulan, it would have in it perhaps Jumbo Romulan Mollusk, a delicacy that appears to be served over rice with scrambled eggs, or maybe Osol Twist, which is a very tart candy mentioned in Deep Space Nine episode Image in the Sand. And then, of course, you would get Vinarine, which is a military staple, in the Next Generation episode Face of the Enemy. I am not sure you would want a Mishloach Mano basket from a Vulcan. Their Mishloach Mano baskets are very logical and bland and vegetarian. Food is one of the pleasures they tend to avoid, period. However, if you have your choice, you really want to get stuff from a Klingon. You'll probably get a bottle of Klingon blood wine and maybe some gach. Blood wine is tended to be served warm. And according to Commander Worf, he likes his blood wine young and sweet. It is made with fermented blood and sugar. You may also get some bagol afterwards, which is their tea. And if you're lucky, you'll have somebody who knows how to serve you bregit lung. It's not really a respiratory organ, but it's a dish of reptilian animals. And of course, gach itself, live serpent worms. The pleasure that you get is the unique sensation of the gach spasming in one's mouth and stomach in their death throes. If you're a vegetarian, they do have glotzed. It's some kind of ground vegetable matter. And you can drink that down with a Klingon martini, which is vermouth, gin, and some blood wine. Since you have to have one of the different brachos, you could get some zilmkach, on which you would make a bori prehaids, if you could say it in Klingon. Well, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lautman, along with Chief Hamantaschen Maker, Dr. Jordan Gorfinkel, wishing you a very freilich and purim, and in all seriousness, leave the alcohol drinking to Scotty, and have a safe and happy purim. Thank you.
long and prosper. Hey, this is Gorf, and I'd love to hear from you on our World According to Gorf Facebook page. You can read me every week on jewishcartoon.com. And for the best in acapella entertainment for your simcha or event, go to pellaproductions.com. All of our episodes are archived on the Nachum Siegel Network site, and podcasts are available on iTunes. So until next time, this is Gorf saying, Shalom! Shalom.